Growing Up in New Zealand is a new longitudinal study following 7,000 families for 21 years. It's the only project of its type in the country and aims to reveal the issues that are relevant to children and their families growing up in the 21st century. The research from Auckland University will provide insights into an array of issues including health and well-being, cognitive development, culture and identity. In this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, social issues reporter Teresa Cowie has spent time with some of the families who are going under the microscope for the next two decades. More than 60,000 children were born in New Zealand last year. So maybe had So what does it mean to grow up in New Zealand today? Remarks by the television host Paul Henry recently sparked a major debate over New Zealandness when he suggested to the Prime Minister that the country's Governor-General wasn't Kiwi-born and bred because of his Indian-sounding name and looks. It's almost time, is it, for you to choose a Governor-General? Yeah, what happens is we have to choose the current Governor-General, Sachinan, finishes in the middle of is next year. Is he even a New Zealander? Uh, yes, he's a New Zealander. Are you going to choose a New Zealander who <laughs> looks and sounds fact, like a New Zealander this time? Well, in fact, every, uh, every Governor-General since Porrot has been a New Zealand-born New Zealander. Hmm. Yeah, so we're going so to go for someone who's more like a New Zealander this time, though? Yeah. Will you go for someone who you look at? We're, and, we're, oh, no, I'm going to tread very carefully here because okay. I do want this job. <laughs> so what does make a New Zealander? And what does a 21st century New Zealand family look, sound and act like? To try to find out, I visited six of the babies taking part in the study to see what it's like to be growing up in their family so far. My first stop was at the McPhee's house in the well-off Auckland beachside suburb of St Heliers. Yes, darling? Mummy. Yes, are you ready for a kai kai? Ah, yes. It's time for kai before it gets cold. Ha <laughs> cute. What are you doing? Come on then, otherwise you'll get freezing. It'll be a waste of crackle. It's one of those muggy Auckland evenings, and Jada and her husband Patrick have invited me to share a roast with them and their two-year-old son, Kanoa. For 10% of the parents in the study, getting pregnant involved some form of reproductive assistance like fertility pills or in vitro fertilisation. The McPhee's son was conceived using IVF because of cancer treatment Patrick had when he was in his 20s. Patrick explains why he and Jada decided to start a family. I never really thought that I wanted to have a family. So when I got um, diagnosed with testicular cancer and they asked me if I wanted to save some sperm, I said, oh, no, don't worry about it. No worries, man. It's not for me. I think it was just uh, just a combination of things, really. You can't really nail it down to one thing, you know? It was me, right? My awesomeness. Like I said, you can't really nail it down to <laughs> one thing, you know? Just one thing. <laughs> I don't think we would have gone through with the IVF procedure if, like, Jada hadn't have taken the first initial steps for me. Jada says by the time she and Patrick reached their early 30s, they'd moved on from partying and what she calls their selfish phase, and they were ready to take the plunge. A half-hour drive south to Manurewa and Marcy Haihai tells a different story about falling pregnant with her daughter Kitani, who's two, and six-month-old Zef. Yeah, look what's these. Christmas cards. Son, look. Should we send Christmas cards to somebody? Who do you want to send a Christmas card to, son? 
Shall we send one to Daddy? Do you want to put a Christmas card from you and sister? Marcy, who's 21, and her ex-partner Zeph Jackson are among the 40% of parents in the study who didn't plan their family. It was just a surprise. Just found out one day that I was pregnant. But my family strongly doesn't believe in abortions and stuff. Yes, yeah, so... Was that something that you considered originally? Or yeah, I did. Me, because it? uh, it's only I was going through problems. And my mum came with me to the doctor's and we went to go um, get some advice on abortions with my nurse. She just, she just gave me a pamphlet and stuff. Um, she had a little talk to me and then she told me to go home and think about it. But when I went home and then I started talking to their dad about it, then he um, sort of changed my mind. Yeah. The study recruited parents who were due to have their babies between the 25th of April 2009 and the 25th of March this year. As the first of the toddlers in the study reached their second birthdays, the researchers have released the initial information about them that reveals what life growing up in New Zealand was like for these babies even before they were born. Hi Florence. Hi Susan. Just wondering how you're getting on with that family that we were trying to arrange an interview for because they were coming and going a wee bit, they'd been overseas, they're now back. How's it coming along? The public health physician and research director of the project, Dr Susan Morton, says it's this sort of information about what the family was like before birth that makes the study stand out from Otago University's Christchurch and Dunedin longitudinal research that began in the 1970s. The reason that we're able to do the study is on the back of the success of those previous studies and the fact that they have informed policy for the last three and a bit decades. This study, though, is different in that it has started before birth it's recruited partners from before birth as well, so right from the beginning of the study. It's also taken a close focus on the early years of development. So it's very focused on finding out the growth and development of those children up until the time they're two or three, whereas the original studies would quite often collect information at birth and then they'd go back to the families when they're three. And of course we now realise how important that pregnancy period is, plus the early life period for all of those later aspects of development. It's so important to talk to people when they are actually pregnant to get honest answers. Absolutely, and really important too, we felt to recruit mums and dads in pregnancy so that we could understand the environment that existed before the child was born because actually child development doesn't really just start from the minute the child is born it's actually influenced by the environment that exists before the child is there and by actually the way that mum and dad have grown up throughout their lives as well. So we wanted to get accurate information about that as well as accurate information actually about what's happening in the pregnancy so that we could then look at how that information impacted on the children's development from birth and then beyond. On the afternoon, I go to meet Marcy Hi-Hi. She's at her mother Rumor's house on the other side of Manarewa. This, this is where I was living before before I got my own house. But, like, my mum's been there, like... Day one. Yeah, ever since day one. Well, she was there when she was born. She's just, like... She's, like, the second mum. Their second mum. Because <laughs> when I get stressed out, I just give them to her. She takes them with open arms. It's good that she's like that. Does it sometimes feel more like you're bringing out your children with your mum than yeah, with yeah, Zeph? It, yeah, it feels exactly like that. Like me and my mum are bringing my kids up. Because my mum gets really angry over things as well, like a mother should. like. Because um, my family, they all like love her and they all want to take her and stuff. And like 
if she goes somewhere where my mum doesn't like, my mum gets angry. Just like the same thing that I would do. A couple of hours drive south to rural Waikato, an Auckland city smog is replaced by a plume of lime dust that's being spread over some dairy paddocks. And down the road at the farming settlement of Tohai, Lisa O'Hanlon's bringing up her three sons on her own. Boston, who's five, three-year-old Lakin, and Tate, who's nearly two. Her teenage daughter Skylar lives with her father in another part of the region. And like Marcy, Lisa says that because mostly her boys' fathers aren't involved in their everyday life, she's reliant on her extended family to help bring them up. I've got the most wonderful mother in the world, I tell you. She's been there since day dot. She's just in Warrensville. That was part of the reason why I moved back over this way, is to be closer to her. And she's drop of the hat whenever you need her. She's there. And she's like great for the um, school event days. She's always there, the plays and all the rest. And She's super nan, I tell you. And I've got my older sister, she's in town as well. And then my younger sister, she's just out, just out of town a bit. And it's great because we've all got kids around about the same age. Skylar's the oldest, obviously, and yeah. it's really neat when they all get together and play, and it's just awesome. Lisa says she loves living rurally because the boys can have plenty of space to play and they can be near to her mum. Lisa O'Hanlon is part of a group of 200 families that were specially selected to be the researcher's core sample group. Dr Susan Morton. So they're a group who we chose because of where they lived in terms of spots around Auckland and Waikato, but also because they represented our different major ethnic groups. So we wanted to have a sample that had around about 25% European, Māori, Pacific and Asian. So that our first set of interviews, when we run them with those families, give us a chance to see how our questions are operating, how the families respond to those, whether we're actually collecting the information that we hope to collect. 57% of mothers in the study describe themselves as New Zealand European, while the proportion of Māori, Pacific Island and Asian mothers is each about 15%. Dr Morton says recruiting all 7,000 families was difficult because the study starts before birth and the birth register couldn't be used to try to track down potential subjects. So we used multiple methods. We went through the lead maternity carers, who obviously see most of the women and who are pregnant at various times, to approach the women on our behalf. We used a lot of advertising through the media to get our message and invitation to those women who were pregnant. But we did continually look at the recruitment and how it was working because ultimately we wanted to get a population of families who were representative of all the current families in New Zealand. And we recognised that those early processes of media only and LMC only weren't reaching all of our mothers. So we then set up a face-to-face -face contact with women in malls for a little while we used hairdressers, we used all sorts of places that mums might go to actually try and make contact with them personally and say, you're really important to us, we'd love you to be part of this study because your story is going to help make this really special. At the time of selection, all of the families taking part lived in Auckland and Waikato. So how representative is that of all New Zealand families? We chose those areas to recruit in because they are areas where half of our births occur anyway. 
they are also the areas where we have the greatest population diversity. But we didn't just choose a group of families who represented only Auckland and Waikato. We actually went to those regions because we knew that we could get representation on ethnicity, on social status, and also on rural-urban mix by going to those areas. That would be generalisable actually to all the current births that are occurring in New Zealand. Um, so whilst those families were living in those areas to be recruited, and that was partly logistical as well because actually the resources to invite people on board are quite challenging to go right around the country. But while they were there during pregnancy, we already have families who've moved all over New Zealand. So in the nine-month and two-year interviews, which we're also carrying on in the field now, we know that we have families all over the place, from the top of the North Island to the bottom of the South. So increasingly, we will have families all over New Zealand. Who's this? Piwaka uh, waka. Piwaka waka. Good boy. Ah, cool. Both Jada and Patrick McPhee are Māori, and they want their son Kano to know about his heritage. So he goes to Kohangareo. Back home, it's normal for kids to go to Kohanga. In our social group, I think we've got the only kids that go to Kohanga. The first results of the research show a third of babies have at least one parent born overseas, and that 20% of the households don't use English as their main language. Hola. Hilda Pritchard and her husband moved to Auckland from Samoa in the late 1990s, and Hilda speaks Samoan to her children most of the time. But at the same time, I speak Samoan to them, and they look at me like, what are you saying? You know, they can't understand. But I still want, to, want them to listen to our language you know, to, to be familiar with it, even if they can't speak it, but, you know, at least they understand. The first results from the study illustrate some of the important factors for families in the run-up to the birth of their babies, what their health was like, how the pregnancy went, and the type of maternity care they relied on. The study shows that parents from wealthier areas were much more likely to go to antenatal classes. Mount Roskill couple Donna and Paul Entercott Say so without family living nearby, it's the close group of friends that have made it antenatal classes that provide some of that backup. Their two-year-old son Sam's in the study, and they also have a 12-week-old baby, Zach. And as Paul heads out the door to his job as a television editor, some of the mothers from the antenatal group sit down for a coffee and a chat with Donna, who's hosting this morning's meet-up. Yeah, we had a shocker last night too. She woke up at 4.30. Oh, no. And then uh, I made her stay in bed, but she just yeah. whinged and whinged and whinged till 6, so nobody really went to sleep. Oh, no. And she's been throwing tantrums all morning. She's tired, yeah. Donna says she didn't like how pregnancy and child-rearing were so politicised in her class, and it's the friendships formed after it that have made the difference. That's sort of been a real lifeline because we're all first-time parents and, you know, comparing what our kids are... Well, not comparing, but, you know, talking about, oh, my child's done this, and they'll say, oh, same, and then you it normalises everything. Um, that's been great, but 
it actually I don't think anything can quite prepare you for um, childbirth and breastfeeding. The next day I'm in Auckland's Meadow Bank to meet full-time mum Sarah Phillips and her banker husband Derek. Their parents to three-year-old Zach and Rowan who's just turned two. Derek's getting ready to leave for work and Sarah's baking biscuits and muffins she plans to share with her antenatal group friends when they visit the local park later that morning. Yummy! Lucky! Is it yummy Isaac? Yeah. I hope so, I haven't tried them. <laughs> <laughs> Hi Oscar! Oh, he's got a big snot. Oh dear, oh most of Sarah's family live in Canada and she says the network of friends she's made from going to antenatal classes has proven just as valuable as what she learned about pregnancy and birth. If you don't have a support group around you who are going through the same thing, you've just, you're like a fish out of water. It's just amazing to be able to have other people that you can um, ask questions to, even if they don't really know what is going on either. You can bounce ideas off and you sort of get... a an idea of what is normal, which really helps. <laughs> Antenatal classes are not popular with all, though. Jada and Patrick McPhee say running their own online media business meant they made it to only two of the classes they were booked into, and the keen churchgoers say they already have a solid group of friends with babies. I liked the idea of the whole coffee group thing, your mothers all do at the same time, but then I realised, oh, but I've got friends. So made it to maybe two coffee group things and I thought I'd just yeah, stick with my crew that I've already got. feels too much like therapy, you know, coffee group, it was like therapy. Yeah, that's what it was, it was kind of like, what problems are you having, what problems yeah, are you having? Like, like, and it was like, whinge, whinge, and it was like, mm, I'm not having that many problems, so yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, my kid's awesome and things are going really choice, yeah sure, I'm not getting any sleep but I don't care and yeah, that was it. <laughs> Hilda Pritchard, who's raising five children with her husband in Papakura, says she had to drastically change her diet to stay healthy during pregnancy because she developed diabetes. Her children are Elaine, 13, who's severely disabled with cerebral palsy, Ethan, 12, Eliakin, who's 11, Evangeline, 8, and two-year-old Amelia. Hilda says the changes she's made have stuck and they've now been adopted by the whole family. I'm a very naughty mother when I was pregnant. The doctor kept telling me, don't eat this, you know, you have to watch out your diabetic and your high blood pressure before you end up being a diabetic. But no, I didn't listen until I was diagnosed diabetic. And then when I was pregnant with Emilia, my last baby, then I listened. So I was eating all the things that I should be eating. With alcohol while you're pregnant, did you drink alcohol or did you reduce that? I, I don't drink, I don't smoke, so that was the only thing I didn't do. <laughs> but food was like the love of my life. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I said, nope, I'll bring my kids, my kids will be the love of my life and, and I need to change. So when I was diagnosed with diabetic, I changed the way I cook and the way we eat. Because when I look at my kids, they were eating exactly the way we eat, me and my husband. Like we love fattening food, we love um, lamb flap and, <clears throat> and stuff like that. So I said, no, I have to put an end to this. 
So now, when they go to his family or my family, and they come back and, Mom, you know that food is yuck. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> and because this, and I said, what do you mean? It's, and they're like, that's too much oil. They put, <laughs> and I said, oh my goodness. So I just said, oh, thank God that that taste that we used to love, it's not there anymore for them. Dr. Susan Morton says 90% of the mothers in the pre-birth study were careful about what they ate and drank during pregnancy. Not all to the same degree. We know that mums who were um, most highly educated tended to make more changes than those who weren't. And similarly, those who lived in the least deprived areas also made more changes than those who lived in the most deprived areas. The main changes they made were to avoid alcohol. Um, They also avoided caffeinated beverages, so coffee, tea, other things that we perhaps enjoy. And they avoided some of the newer things that have come onto the list of avoidable foods in pregnancy, things like sushi, raw fish, uh, processed deli products, those sorts of things. And, And the vast majority of women did make those changes. Susan Morton says the most important information gleaned was about when those changes are made. Jada McPhee, who had IVF to get pregnant with her son Kanor, says she was preparing her body with the right food even before his embryo was implanted. Lentils, uh, no coffee. I cut out sugar and refined flours and stuff for a while. I went a bit hardcore, didn't I? That's a great thing about IVF, is because it's so planned. Jada had the schedule she knew when the treatment was beginning, what she'd be doing, so... Like she got herself really fit beforehand, like inside and out. And when it's time to put those little swimmers in there, she was in great condition, you know, the best physically and health-wise that I've ever seen her. So she has this thing she wants to make a five-star hotel, and that's what she certainly did there. The study found the most common change was for mothers to stop drinking alcohol, and it will use that information to try to find out what effects that has on the children's lives later on. For many parents, having the freedom to go out to bars or pursue their own hobbies slows down or stops as they prepare to have a family. Activities done together as a family may replace this. Most parents have told the researchers they want their children to have a range of activity and experiences as they grow up. So what do these New Zealand families get up to when they step outside the normal household routine? Hilda Pritchard and her five children go to church. Every Sunday I yell, get up, it's Sunday, it's time, it's already, it's nine o'clock, get up. Every day of the week, they can do whatever they want, but there's only one day they can go to church and, you know, respect God and, and the church and our religion and our belief. I want them to follow that. The Phillipses from Meadowbank say their children love baking or getting involved in the garden. That's why typically we would do a little trip or something like that, um, and it might be a you know, walk to local park or a trip out to Waiheke or a walk in the bush or yeah, something like that just makes it a bit more interesting for us and, and kids just uh, love doing things. Marcy Haihai and Manorewa says they don't really do activities as a family. Katani's got her room full of toys and she just plays with them. She likes to watch TV, the Playhouse channel on Sky. That, that's where I think that she's learning all her stuff from because um, she's been like freaking me out lately like she can count all by herself and do things that I didn't even know she could do. In Waikato, the O'Hanlands head for the bush. My boyfriend, he's got a batch up at the beach there and 
we go away as often as we can, take the boys up there and go fishing. And they're also really into hunting at the moment, so he sort of let them have a go on the slug gun for the first time the other day. Um, oh, we went to the museum in Hamilton and we took the boys to go and see the dinosaurs and they loved that, man. The Entercots from Mount Roskill say with a new baby and a two-year-old, just getting out the door can be tough. We're just starting to be a bit brave and do a few things. Where did we go? We went to um, we went to Lee. Yeah, we went to Lee two days ago and to the beach for the first time, and that was nice. Um, yeah, but it's basically at home because it's so hard to get out anywhere. And for the McPhees and St Heliers, father and son like to ride the BMX up and down the driveway. And we're just sticking this um, faux fur cushion <laughs> middle bar here. Parking car noir on the bar. Bye-bye, bye, bye, Andy. Hands on. Are you ready, son? Aye, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye, bye-bye. Really? Okay. Ducky Ducky Okay, let's go, son. Woohoo! Go, go, go! Hello! <laughs> As the study finds out more and more about what goes on in New Zealand families, its main funder the Ministry of Social Development, will use that information to create policy. Research Director Dr Susan Morton. What we have done from the beginning, which is a little different with the research study, is worked very closely with all the policymakers and across all the parties, actually, to ensure that as we've planned the study and designed it, we've understood from their perspective what the policy issues are. So we haven't waited until we've got a set of research results and then gone to the policymakers and said, look, this is what our research is telling us. We've worked alongside them to say, what are the questions that you would like to get answers to from these families that we're bringing on board this important new study? And that allows us to then talk to them about the answers to those questions in a really quick time frame to allow us to translate that evidence back. Now, what we do as researchers is we can deliver those stories. We deliver that collection of evidence from the families. It does challenge all of us to say, what are we going to do with this evidence? We'll continue to work alongside the policymakers, whoever the government of the day is, to talk through how we might respond to some of those challenges that perhaps the report is throwing up. Despite the diversity of the parents, most shared common aspirations for their children to grow up happy, healthy and play an active role in society. As the study rolls out over the next 20 years, researchers will be able to test these aspirations against the reality for the 7,000 families. The biggest thing is education for them and making sure they get the best education that they can. So they've got something under their belt, like qualifications, which I never got. I guess you always have aspirational hopes for them to do well and I guess try and support them in what they want to achieve. Do as well as they can and, yeah, you just support them in whatever it is they choose they want to do and just hope that it's something that you want them to do. What I'd like for my children is that they are emotionally stable, um, especially in the line of work that I'm in. <laughs> I would hate to see, you know, my kids go through some of the things that I've seen with some of the teenagers. I want them to be someone that I can be proud of, like something that makes them happy. Like I want them to do all the things that I couldn't do. Because I haven't travelled yet. I haven't even been out of the North Island. <laughs> so I hope they can be the same. I just want them to do something that makes them happy. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Teresa Cowie. Technical production was by William Saunders and it was produced by Sue Ingram. 
More Radio New Zealand Insight programmes are available to download from radionz.co.nz forward slash insight.